Good morning, church. Thank you. That's great. It's so wonderful to be back. So wonderful to see faces that I haven't seen for a while. Wonderful to see faces I don't recognize because you're new to this place and that means the church is reaching out and I love what you're doing here. But it's always good to be back home among people that we've known and loved for so many, many years. So thank you. Several of you have asked um, what I've been doing or what else I've been doing since uh, the last time I was here. Uh, we're in our third interim ministry at this point in time. It's at Union Christian Church in Terre Haute. So we're driving back and forth to Terre Haute on Sunday morning to help them while they're looking for a preacher. Last week they had a young man preach. It looks like that might be the possibility for them to hire him. So that's a good thing. I would encourage you to continue to pray about that. And I'm still involved with Bob Russell and his uh, minister's retreats. Matter of fact, first part of this week, Monday through Thursday, we were doing one of those. And uh, this is an opportunity to bring ministers in for just a time of encouragement and refreshing. I want to remind you again how frequently ministers are hurting, lonely, ready to quit. And so if through these retreats, which we'll do uh, about eight of them this year, we can keep guys from dropping out. Um, that, that will mean a, a whole lot. Uh, I'm helping with E2. We just had the spring uh, seminar in Indianapolis uh, Friday and Saturday. I was up there doing a, a workshop for them. So we've been, we've been staying plenty busy, but like I say, no place like home. So it's really good to be back and, uh, and to share with you this morning. I like this theme. Always have loved the parables of Jesus in Scripture. And this morning I'm going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 20 on the workers in the vineyard. So if you want to follow along in your scriptures or on your phone, on the screen, it'll be there, Matthew chapter 20. In my youth, I never tired of going to Spencer County, Indiana, where my grandparents had an aging 70-acre farm. Uh, from the dusty hayloft to the rusty hay rake, it was a place that was just ripe for adventure. You know, there's something special about being on a farm and around farm life. I think part of that is the reason that Jesus used agriculture and vineyards and farms for so many of his lessons and parables. Uh, Jesus had a lot to say about agriculture as it relates to the kingdom of God. He shared the parable, if you remember, about the four soils and how the seed was scattered on the four different kinds and what they produced. Then there was the parable of the rich farmer who tore down his barns to build bigger ones because he had had such a good harvest. And then, of course... Uh, there was the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. Uh, and, and the whole point of that was good and bad are going to be together until the harvest. That's the only time you're able to separate them. Jesus assured us in his teaching that a good tree does not produce bad fruit. He cursed the fig tree because it had the pretense of being fruitful and had no fruit to offer. And Jesus reminds us that he is the vine, we are the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. But of all the parables that Jesus told that generate out of the concept of agriculture, the one in Matthew 20 has the most unexpected conclusion. As a matter of fact, if you read a list of the top 10 favorite parables, this would not be on it. Okay? This has not been one of my favorite parables through much of my life and ministry. And you're going to find out here in a minute why, because you, you probably feel the same way. So let's go to Matthew chapter 20. We'll start in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. 
he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again at the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. Then he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, you call the workers and pay them their wages, but begin with those who were hired last and go to those who were hired first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. <laughs> so when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Ah, these men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But the, he answered one of them, friend, am I not being unfair to I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was last hired the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then comes the punchline. So the last will be first. And the first will be last. With clusters of grapes tugging on weary vines, this vineyard owner goes into town to hire workers. Now, this was commonplace. It still is commonplace in certain places of the world today. You, if, if a laborer wanted to be hired for a day's work, and most of them worked that way. In this day and time, there were very few salaried people. So you work day in and day out. From day to day, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. That's the way he taught us to pray because that's the way people lived. And there was usually a place in, uh, in the community, maybe in the market square area, where these guys would stand and would wait to be hired by somebody who needed their labor. And so this guy goes in early in the morning. Now the Jewish work day at that day and time was from 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. It was a 12-hour work day. So he went in at 6 o'clock, found some guys who were willing to work, and he said, I'll pay you a denarius for your day's work. Now that was the common daily wage. A denarius is a silver coin. It has uh, one-tenth troy ounce of silver in it. It was minted by the Roman government, and it was always minted with the emperor's impression on it. When the emperor changed, they changed the coins and reissued them with the new emperor's image on it. This is what you got for a day's work, and that was about what you could live on uh, for a day. Well, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the owner goes back. The job is bigger, I guess, than what he thought. And he saw some other workers and said, I'll hire you too. And this time, he didn't tell them how much it was going to pay. He said, I'll just pay you fair. What's right? And they went, glad to have a job. Back to town again at noon. Back again at 3 o'clock. And the owner hired more pickers for the vineyard. Finally, with daylight waning and only 60 minutes of work left for the day, the aggressive owner hired the last of the workers. Evidently, they had waited all day, hoping against hope that somebody would give them a job. And when he came and said, we only got much, much time left, only about an hour, go into the field. They were ecstatic. Now, they had no expectation of getting a day's wage. They were only work about an hour. But let me tell you something. When you've waited all day to work and you're waiting for something to take home, if you can't take home a whole loaf, a slice, 
is better than none. And so they went off into the vineyard. Now, up to this point in the story, we really like the story. Hey, this is pretty cool. This, this is an exciting story. This is where it changes. We don't like it so much. As the laborers filtered in after the day's work, they lined up in order of seniority, those that were hired first and then those who were hired last. And it would be customary that you would start with the early hires and you would pay them and you'd work your own way down to the, to the last hires. But the, <laughs> the landowner pulls a sneaky one here and says to the foreman, he said, you know, let's, let's change this up a little bit. He said, you, you start with the 11th hour workers and work your way back. Oh, okay. Well, now, that would have been unusual. It would almost have been insulting for that day and time for that to happen. But he does. And so when he hands the 11th hour workers a denarius, imagine what's happening now in the minds of those who had come at 6 o'clock in the morning. Hey, look at that. They're passing out bonuses. Man, if those guys who started in the 11th hour and only worked for an hour get a denarius, imagine what it's going to be like when it gets to us. But their excitement quickly faded because as he went down the line, everybody got a denarius. It didn't matter when you came. And when he came to the last of them, they got a denarius as well. They were now mad. They were really hot under the tunic. I'm telling you, these guys felt like they had been gypped. At best, I think Jesus' listeners are puzzled. I think they're scratching their heads. They may have been frustrated. At worst, they were angry. Who is this landowner? Who owns this vineyard? We're going to have a talk with him. I don't know where Jesus is getting his information, but we don't want this kind of a guy showing up and treating our workers this way. The early morning crew grumbled at the owner's ethics in the parable. Did you notice that? And they offered their best defense with a little taste of wine. These men who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us, to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Hear their complaint? I think they got a pretty good case. But the owner's response is pretty irrefutable. He says, well, did you get what I promised to pay you, a denarius? Well, yeah, I did. Are you angry at my generosity? Well, I shouldn't be angry at generosity, but yeah, I guess I am. It's my money, isn't it? I can spend it or give it however I want to, right? Yeah, it's your money. I guess you can do with it what you want. And the crowd is still mulling over all of this when Jesus hits them with the punchline. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. <laughs> what does that even mean? Can you understand their confusion and the struggle that they're having? Every time I read this passage, I struggle with its implication. My American sense of justice is offended in this story. If fair pay for a job well done is the heart of the parable, then this story does reek of injustice. I, am, I empathize with those early morning hires, don't you? I mean, how is it fair to treat everyone equally? I mean, if you're a hard worker and you get the same pay as the slothful worker, doesn't that destroy your motivation to put forth your best effort? I mean, wasn't that the downfall of the communist system? Everybody got paid the same thing whether you worked hard or you didn't. So nobody decided to work hard at all. Now, before you plan a protest on this parable, just take a closer look at the theme. Remember, parables have one 
central lesson. They have one major point. There may be other little points along the way, but they have one central lesson. Jesus isn't talking about fair pay. That's not the lesson of the parable. And there's a lot of other things that distract us when we read through this parable. We start analyzing the vineyard. You know, what size vineyard was it? How many people did they have to hire to manage this vineyard? It's not about the vineyard. It doesn't matter whether it was the premier vineyard of the day or this was just a family-owned vineyard ready for harvest. It's not about the vineyard. That's just the representation of the world. And it isn't about the quality of labor either. I mean, we really don't know anything about these migrant workers. Jesus mentions nothing about their skill levels or their previous experience. We don't know if they insisted on several breaks through the day or if they worked right through the day. It says nothing about their work ethic. The parable does not even address the quality of the work. I mean, how many bushels of, of grapes did these guys pick? Or were they kind of slow about it? This we do know about the workers. In the arena of availability, they were all equal. Every time the owner of the vineyard went back, he found ready and willing workers. Available workers. And it didn't matter what was stamped on their time card. <laughs> they were all ready to work. Now let me say this, the virtue of availability is not the main point of this parable, but it is a meaningful subplot to the parable. You see, throughout biblical history, the Lord has always considered availability more important than ability. Your availability to God is more important than what abilities you bring to God. Because I don't care how talented you are or not, when God takes your ability and combines it with his omnipotent power, God can do anything. The story of Joseph, Joseph in the uh, book of Genesis has always been one of my favorite stories. You, you, you remember the story, the young man who grew up, the favorite of his father was slightly spoiled, got that famous coat of many colors or long sleeves or whatever it was, and he was rough around the age, edges when it comes to people skills. He was insensitive, and, and he, he, well... He just wasn't the kind of guy that you'd like to hire. But he was always available to God. He was always faithful to God. And when he was sold by his brothers into slavery and then faced that steamy relationship that he ran from with Mrs. Potiphar and then because he was lied about spent years in prison, God knocked off the rough edges. But through it all, Joseph remained available to God. And when he was sold into slavery, he was 17. When he comes out of prison, he's 30 years old and becomes second in command of all of Egypt. Why? Because he remained available to be used by God whenever God was ready. Now, does that describe you this morning? Are you willing and available to be used by the Heavenly Father? When the owner of the vineyard returned to the marketplace at 5 o'clock and seems to be a little bit startled to find guys still standing there, not at work, he said, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. Now, at a glance, what do you conclude about these guys? <laughs> this is the lazy part of the group. Here they are. They haven't worked all day. Maybe they slept in. Missed the first wave. Perhaps they dwaddled away the best hours of the day sipping a double caramel mocha frappuccino at the local Starbucks and didn't show up when they should. Now, hear, hear me. That type of idleness, that type of laziness would not have been rewarded with a job. We are repelled at lazy. We recoil at lazy. 
Musician Jimmy Lyons already said, tomorrow is the only day of the year that appeals to a lazy man. <laughs> Billy Graham wrote, he said, every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot be our full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibility to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. He's right. We dare not be lazy with the opportunities around us to serve God. You see, God also rebels at laziness. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18, If a lazy man, if a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he said, If a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. Now, Paul's not talking about people that can't work, that are unable to, uh, unable to work. He's talking about the guy who's too lazy to work. Paul says, if he doesn't work, if he doesn't contribute, he doesn't get to eat. One of my favorite Old Testament passages on the subject of laziness comes from Proverbs 26, verse 15. A shiftless sluggard puts his fork in the pie, but is too lazy to lift it to his mouth. Ah, you can't get pie to your mouth with or without a fork. You got a problem. <laughs> That's what I call laziness. Each day is a gift from God. Make it a fulfilling day. Make every minute count. Be lively, not lazy, and you'll enjoy today as much as you look forward to tomorrow, and the pie will taste even better. These laborers in the parable, however, were not lazy, folks. They simply had lacked the opportunity to work. Now, I got to tell you, I admire their tenacity. Had I been there, I'd have probably gone home at noon and said, well, there's just, there's just no more chance. There's not going to be an opportunity for me to work today. I wish it was. But these guys had stayed until the 11th hour, and their persistence paid off big time. As the old saying goes, good things come to those who wait. Exactly. And these guys had waited and, and were rewarded with a job. Short, short working period. But man, what a bonus from the landowner. Now, I know people in the body of Christ who feel they have no opportunity to make a difference. Now, in some cases, let's be fair, people just aren't watching. The opportunities are they're not watching. But most people I know are really sincere. They want to serve. They just haven't had a chance in some way to use their lives or their talents for God, and they keep waiting, and they're about ready to give up. Can I remind you this morning that God works on his own timetable? And just because you haven't found that golden opportunity you've been waiting for, yet doesn't mean you aren't going to have it. Moses had 79 candles on his birthday cake as a shepherd. For 40 years, he had been shepherding sheep. And don't you know, at 79, he thought, well, I think, I think God's probably done with me. I, you know, I, I'm getting to that point where I need to step away and, and, and bow out or, you know. Well, what a difference a year makes. A year later, when there were 80 candles on his Midian birthday cake, Moses was packing his bags and brushing up on his Egyptian because God was sending him back to become the great deliverer to bring the Israelites out of their slavery and lead them to the promised land. 80 years old. The first 80 years didn't even match the last 40 years of his magnificent life. Can you imagine at 80 doing that? But God had a plan. And don't you know that on the Judean motherhood survey form, Elizabeth had to check the box marked failure. She was childless. She had not been able to give a son to her husband, Zechariah. Ah, 
being far beyond the years of childbearing, something happens. Nine months after her priestly and surprisingly speechless husband was visited by an angel, Elizabeth gives birth to a son, and they name him John. And that John is the one that grew up to become John the Baptist, so famous in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus remarked of John, he says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's from the lips of Jesus. Imagine Elizabeth. All of my opportunities are gone. <laughs> oh, no, Elizabeth, your best one is yet to be. So I'm, I'm telling you, when you think the service of the king has passed you by, when you think the opportunities are gone for you to make a difference, ah, don't you dare give up. Don't you throw in the towel. Don't you, don't you lose heart in what God is able to do because God is not finished with you yet. Until the day that you draw your last breath, God can use you if you're available and looking for the opportunity. Your prospects to leave a mark on this world may not come until, well, the 11th hour. So don't quit. Stay at it. Make yourself available. Watch for the opportunities. And God rewards such patient persistence. May I share another subplot lesson with you? Thank you. For all that these vineyard workers had in common, there was at least one distinction among them. The early morning hires were the only ones who should not have complained because they were the only ones who had negotiated and agreed to their pay. They knew what they would receive at the end of the day. And yet by the time it came to them, they were angry. Why? You know, of all of them, they should have said, oh, you know, if we'd have known he was that generous, maybe we should have negotiated a little harder. But we agreed to a denarius, and that's what we got, so we really have no complaints. No. You know, if nobody else had been hired that day, they came to the end of that 12-hour shift, were paid a denarius, and went home, do you think they would have been happy with it? Yeah. The only thing that changed their attitudes was the fact that somebody else was treated more generously than what they perceived they were being treated. Suddenly their contentment became anger and resentment. Why are we so, sad, so seldom satisfied? Why is contentment such a fleeting feeling in our lives? Legend has it that the industrial tycoon John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? To which he supposedly replied, just a little more. Now I don't know if the story is true, but the statement is, we're always wanting just a little more. We never have quite enough. We're never quite content. Greed, that excessive desire to acquire more than a person needs or deserves, always destroys. Everyone suffers when a greedy person is the driving force behind anything. Proverbs 28, 25 says, a greedy man stirs up dissension, but he who trusts in the Lord, ah, he'll prosper. In contrast to such greed, Jesus wanted his listeners to grasp the one truly significant point of the parable. We've looked at all these things that are distractions. But what is the heartbeat of this parable? What's the one central truth? What's the one message that Jesus wanted us to get out of this parable? You ready? Here it is. Our God, the owner of the vineyard in the story, our God is a generous God. Generous with his mercy. Generous with his grace. 
generous with his forgiveness, generous with his love. Our God is a generous God. And generosity, folks, is such a winsome virtue. We really like generous people. Those who engage in philanthropic adventures are always held in the highest esteem. You see, because generosity encourages. It just does. Have you ever been in a restaurant eating and you go to pay the bill and the server says, no, nah, the bill's already been paid by somebody else. And you're, you're, wow. Free food always tastes better, doesn't it? Let me tell you. But, but you, you think, oh my goodness, and who was it? Well, they wanted to be anonymous. And you may not ever know who did it, but you walk out of that restaurant like on cloud nine because somebody was encouraging to you by being generous. And generosity heals. Dr. Carl Menninger wrote, he said, money given is a good criterion of a person's mental health. Generous people are rarely mentally ill. I would suggest that generosity is also a barometer of spiritual health. We are clearly a reflection of our Father when we share out of our lives generously with others. And did you know generosity leads to gratitude? And so generous people, grateful people, sleep better. Do you know that? Generous people sleep better. You combine a generous spirit with a sermon and you'll get the best nap you've had in, in forever. <laughs> generosity also surprises it's the unanticipated word of generous praise. It's the unexpected offer from a neighbor to help you with that project in the backyard. It's the unforeseen check that shows up in your mailbox out of the blue because a generous acquaintance wants to do something nice for you. And you're always surprised. Because you see, generosity surprises us. Even more amazing for me is what this parable has done to change my life and my ministry. After more than four decades of preaching, this parable has surprised me in ways I never thought possible. A few years ago, right here at Sherwood Oaks, uh, Kenny Uli came to see me about his relationship with the Lord. Kenny and I sat down. We talked about accepting Jesus as his Savior. Kenny was reluctant. Uh, he'd put off a spiritual decision that he knew deep down he truly needed to make. And, and he was just super hesitant. Now, Kenny's struggle was not with his faith. No, he, he really believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Believed that Jesus was saved. Here was his problem. He was struggling with his past. How could a perfect God love and forgive him for a lifetime of lousy choices? Could God really be that generous? Could God's forgiveness really extend that far? I mean, after all, he had wasted a lifetime without the Savior. His 62nd birthday was just around the corner, and he thought his best days were behind him. And he expressed shame to me about being a Johnny-come-lately to the kingdom of God. This is what he said to me. He said, it isn't fair to sneak in at the 11th hour and give God the leftovers. Isn't that like us? What was make about us? I've been too bad. I have nothing to offer God. I don't deserve to be forgiven. Now those are all true statements. But it's not about us. It's about God, our generous God. It's not about the farm hands. It's about the farmer. It's not about the fruit pickers. It's about the vineyard owner. It's his gift to give to whomever 
and whenever he chooses. Well, Kenny and I talked more. Kenny did come to Christ, and I baptized him. Oh, folks, you should have seen the look on his face when he came up out of the water. And then, then unexpectedly, just a week after that day we baptized him, Kenny died unexpectedly, the result of a routine, non-life-threatening surgery. We were stunned. And suddenly, folks, this parable of God's generosity took on a whole new meaning to me. Never had this parable seemed more relevant or more hopeful. I was no longer wrestling with the apparent wage inequity. At that moment, I was celebrating God's generosity. You see, I think I have finally discovered my real reason that I don't care for this parable too much. The real reason I wrestled with this parable for years is because I'm one of the 6 a.m. hires. I can't remember a day in time when I didn't know the church. My name was on the cradle roll as a baby in the church. At age 12 on Easter Sunday, 1967, I accepted Jesus Christ and was baptized into him. I started preaching before I even graduated from college. I've celebrated dozens of weddings and scores of funerals that I've preached, and I've attended hundreds of leadership meetings. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, Deep down, I didn't think it fair that on one's first time at bat, he could slide into the kingdom's home plate and be called safe. I mean, after all, I've been running the bases faithfully for years. It just didn't feel right until Kenny Uli. See, I thought I'd been helping him spiritually. But all along, Kenny had been helping me understand the God of generosity whom I serve. And I shouldn't be surprised how God works, but I always am. I will be forever grateful that God's generosity, generosity is distributed on his terms, not on mine. And I will be forever grateful that we will share heaven with Kenny Uli and every other 11th hour higher. And folks, the parable's punchline now makes sense to me. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Among those of us who had prayed for Kenny's conversion. He was the last to come to Jesus, but the first to see him face to face. I want to be generous like my Lord, but I got a long way to go. How about you? I want to be generous in mercy. I want to be generous in grace. I want to be generous in sharing the gospel, in proclaiming the truth. I want to be generous in forgiveness. I want to be generous in loving this world as God has loved this world. I want to love like my Lord. So I think it's time that we learn how to embrace the God of this parable, the God of generosity. I'm looking forward to seeing Kenny Uli again one of these days. But most of all, I'm looking forward to bowing at the feet of Jesus, whose incredible generosity and indescribable grace have transformed us and given us eternal life. Kind of wish I had a couple of those old Roman denarius coins. If I had had two, I'd have placed one in Kenny's hand right before they closed the casket. An appropriate wage for an 11th hour hire. The other one I'd keep in my pocket so that every time I touched it or saw it, I would be reminded that I serve a God
who is generous and who wants me to be that way too. Ah, folks, let's take the parable to heart. Let's be a generous people that because of our love, our grace, our mercy, our forgiveness, our truth, we point others to the God of the universe in this parable. Let me pray with you. Father, we are so grateful, grateful beyond words for what you have done for us that only you could do. Lord, I thank you for what you have taught us in your word about your generosity. So help us to be generous in every aspect of our lives so that we can point others to you and that they will see that you, the God of the universe, the God of the vineyard, welcomes us at the 6th o'clock hour or at the 11 o'clock hour if we come genuinely heartfelt to Jesus. And if there's one here today, Lord, who doesn't know Jesus, maybe it's the 11th hour for them, I pray that they'll find your Son as Lord and Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can watch all of our video content, both current and past, on our YouTube channel? Visit youtube.com slash Sherwood Oaks to watch messages, series, and complete worship services.